0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufak, Chief Economist for the Africa Region at the World Bank. Today, we're tackling an issue that is on the minds of every African policymaker and one that has captured international discussions for several years, Africa's debt. Debt in itself is not a bad thing. Debt can actually be an incredibly useful tool for governments when managed transparently, and correctly, and when it is used to fund investment that pay off in the long run. that can fill important funding gaps that development assistance and domestic revenue mobilization alone cannot. But several countries across the world and in Africa found themselves in a vicious cycle of debt effectively mortgaging their people's future by agreeing to riskier and less transparent terms that hold their fiscal space hostage. Civil society groups in many places have rightly become increasingly vocal in opposition to borrowing for large projects, advocating for more prudent spending and greater transparency. And they are right, because in some African countries, More than 50% of government's revenue are devoted just to servicing the debt, which is paying back interest on the debt, which means there is fewer resources left for education, for health, for infrastructure that are so desperately needed. This is an issue around the world, for sure. But today, of course, we are focusing on Africa. I'm honored to welcome Carmen Reynard, the World Bank Group's chief economist and an expert on global debt to discuss this and more. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you, Albert. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Carmen, it's wonderful to have you on Afronomics. And, and you know, this issue of debt is one you have explored, uh, you know, uh, you know for, for a long time. I'll start by asking you, uh, Carmen, how do you assess the debt situation in African countries, and how does it compare with the rest of the world?
1: So, Albert, before I I do that, let me just say, I, I think the interest on debt is also driven by the fact that debt crises, debt problems are so correlated with so many other things that we care about, you know, every aspect of development and, and, you know, when conditions uh, uh, worsen, the impacts uh, are far ranging. So it's not just about the debt per se, but about every, all the baggage uh, that all the bad baggage that comes with a lot of the debt problems. But to, to get to your point uh or your question, you know, first of all, let me put the African context a little bit in perspective. Um the first point is a more general point about Africa. The second one that I want to emphasize is heterogeneity, right? I mean we can't talk about African debt as a single, you know, it, it, the, the situation is 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 the the range of vulnerability is 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 large, um, from the countries that are already in debt distress to those that are still, you know, considered low low risk. So so hetero, keep heterogeneity in mind. Second issue is I do want to point out that conditions were worsening well before COVID. You know, as a whole, Africa, like Latin America, is very connected to the commodity cycle. And when commodity prices began to really plummet in 2015, uh revenues started to suffer, hard currency uh started to become more scarce, and the 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 prosperous years that we had in the prior decade began to really be challenged and enter COVID. Uh, and so on top of what was already an increasingly uh, frail situation for many countries, uh, you have us exactly as you mentioned, the, the, the COVID shock. Uh, if you look, let's start with output. Let's start with GDP. The COVID crisis had the most synchronous decline in per capita GDPs that we've seen, this is not a seat of the pants statement from the 1900s onward, Um, worse than the depression, more synchronous than the 1980s. So it's a major shock uh, on already, as I said, a more frail environment. So we cannot underestimate, Uh, as you rightly point out, this is a big issue. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a persistent one, because right now we're in, in the current context, we're seeing a great deal more optimism about recovery from the pandemic. But the recovery is, is as you know, and you point out all the time, you know, re, who's recovering? Uh, the recovery is very uneven, very unequal with the advanced economies doing much, much better um, than the developing countries as a whole. And within the developing countries, as I said, those that already started from weaker positions are finding it much harder to recover, which really highlights uh, the the frailty of the situation and and the kind of doom loop that you also uh, alluded to because you have fewer fiscal resources, so much of it devoted to debt servicing. Uh, So recovery takes resources um and the lack of fiscal space uh the the you know time it's taking for the disease to really work its way through the cycle is not synchronous with what's happening on the disease front it's coming later. Uh, so you know Africa as a as a region uh in my assessment like, I believe yours is still one, you know, a major source of concern for, for, you know, not just this year, but next year. And unfortunately in many cases, even beyond that, let me stop there. No, that's, that's, that's a a great assessment, Carmen.
0: And, and and there are two things you've said that, that, uh, really uh, resonated with me. One is, uh, the you know, situation in, in most African countries and acknowledging that heterogeneity, the situation is very different from other countries because even before COVID hit, the collapse in commodity prices that started, you know, you had the episode of 2014, but just before COVID, there was another shock on, on, on the main commodities exported by Africa. So that makes it, you know, that makes the situation certainly... Uh, you know, uh, more more severe than, than other countries. And I would probably want to hear from you if you see a similar trend in some Latin American countries as well. Then the second point you made that is really uh, fundamental is that COVID has led to a big recession in Africa. We have estimated that, you know, GDP growth would probably be around minus 2%. And for 2022 onward, um, it's going to be hovering between 3 and 4%, depending on the speed at which we get vaccines. And you and I know they're not coming as, as fast as we, we would uh, like. And, and also, uh, the rate at which we can actually get out of this situation of, of uh, you know debt distress for some countries and high risk of debt distress for some. So, um, Carmen, um, you know, historically, when you look at it, and I know you've done so much work on this question, are there lessons we can learn from the past that are still relevant today, including learning from the Latin American experience?
1: Some of the lessons are are really hard, uh, and some are very timely. I mean, for the, for the countries that are not in debt distress, okay? I think one of the things that, not necessarily immediately, but I'd like to take up with you in this conversation, is the, issue, the importance of debt management. You know, that that because uh, we are also internationally at a pivotal point where, you know, U.S. inflation is spiking. No one knows, is it temporary? Is it more lasting? That has direct bearing on international interest rates, on the terms, because one of the big differences now from the crisis of the 80s is that the composition of African debt, and again, I want to highlight heterogeneity, okay, Um, but the composition is certainly much more complex uh, than it was in in the 80s. First of all, external debt was the whole story. Now, we also have domestic debt, okay? That's one big difference. So, managing When I talk about managing debt management, I talk about both fronts, both domestic and external. Secondly, uh, in the 1980s, you know, commercial banks or multilaterals were the whole story. Now, for a number of African countries, we also have bondholders uh, and a much more heterogeneous uh, set of official creditors, including China, which was not there um, in, in the prior Crisis. So I think one big lesson is, you know, the importance of debt management, the issue of especially in times of high indebtedness and in times of uncertainty, uh, you know, lengthening maturities, avoiding uh, the, the, the siren song, if you will, of bond markets uh, where coupons are very high. Uh, and you have to grow a lot to be able to repay uh, those coupons, um, you know, are important takeaways. Uh, The other lesson that is grimmer is once you do get into a debt crisis, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. And that is not just from the Latin American experience. It's also from the African experience and, and debt crisis in general. I mean, people... Counter, when I say, well, look, it takes a really long time to restructure debt. That's right.
0: It's easier to get into a debt crisis than very difficult to get out of it.
1: Indeed, indeed. And some people are even more optimistic and say, look, uh, uh, the Ecuador restructuring, uh, you know, in 2020 or the Argentine didn't take very long. Uh, but is there a crisis over? I don't think so. So, w- avoiding the repeated game of restructuring, not getting a deep enough haircut, not getting sufficient debt relief, p- can put you in a path of these recurring uh, uh, debt restructurings, which, which are, you know, are, are as I said, the consequences are much broader, uh, you know, much broader in terms of, of really. A setback to development. That's right, and, and, and so we need to take those
0: lessons from the past with, with, with a lot of uh, uh, you, know, you know with, with uh, uh, you know some selectivity because um, you know the changing composition of African debt, as you have mentioned, uh, makes it uh, you know quite peculiar. It's no longer the uh, the debt of the Hittite era. We now have a number of African countries issuing euro bonds or issuing bonds on regional and national markets. So, um, so that paper that is being issued is often you know, short term and often uh, not at rates we can call concessional. So um, we have had that change in composition that limit the, uh, the, you know, the history of the previous episodes, uh, the lessons from those previous episodes to be applied. But one clear uh, lesson uh, from the past is that uh, it's going to take some time. So, uh, Carmen, the international community has been mobilizing and we have seen initiatives uh, such as the uh, uh, Debt Service Suspension Initiative, DSSI. Um, We have seen the, uh, the G20 Common Framework and I know you've been Involved in in all this discussion at the highest level. Tell us what you see as being the path out of this crisis.
1: So let me start with the debt suspension initiative. Uh, The DSSI, I thought, was a really good move, very timely. Um, You know, the fact that in the midst of of a pandemic, in the midst of emergency, that some of the debt servicing could be redirected to more emergency needs uh, is certainly right, right issue, right time. Okay, the problem is, in the end, it was somewhat more disappointing. All right, that because uh, the amounts that could have been redirected. Uh, to, to the emergency needs, to the pandemic needs, were much smaller. Uh, they were much smaller because the private sector did not participate, because uh, countries understandably became concerned that if they did participate, uh, they would be downgraded. Uh, by the credit rating agencies and that it may trigger all kinds of cross default clauses. So in the end, what I am getting at is right, you know, right direction, but you know, the scale of of the assistance was not what had been hoped for uh, when it was started last spring. The
0: DSSI was a, a good idea but, but really uh, uh, too small to have a significant and lasting impact.
1: I, I think that that's where I come out on this. Okay. Uh, now, what about the common framework? Okay. So, and this it's, it's very, really, I'm glad you brought this up. I, I expected you would, we, we had, you know, in our prior conversation, but you know, the, 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 the it comes to an end this year, the DSSI. So also more, I I think more of the strains, uh, you know, there, as you well know, there are a number of countries that are in that very borderline zone where they're not quite in debt distress, but quickly approaching it. I think uh, the end of the DSSI will, will probably also be an important uh, uh, vulnerability inflection point. Um, And the common framework, well, it remains to be tested again. The idea that all big creditors, as I mentioned before, uh, China is a big player. It's a big player in Africa. It's a big player in a lot of the developing and emerging markets. And talking about sort of the old Paris club, when China is bigger than the entire Paris club combined. um You know, so the need for the common framework and getting all the creditors together is very important. Yes, because
0: the solution uh, wouldn't be a Paris Club solution as it was the past. It was the case for HIPIC.
1: That's absolutely right. So, the idea of having all the creditors to be able to uh, and and talking about the issue of intercreditor equity, uh, so that you know participation is full. Because again. One of the problems with DSSI was private sector wasn't involved. We've also just discussed, and as you mentioned, many of the uh, African countries tap bond markets, have more private finance. Uh, So Common Framework tries to address that. Now, it's still a trial balloon, okay? You know, so uh, we've had, you know, Chad, uh, Ethiopia, uh, and Zambia are the first three countries that that have applied, but it's too early to say. You know, the issues with Chad are big because they still involve a big private. The largest creditor of Chad is a private creditor at Glencore. Uh, China is a big creditor to to uh, Zambia to Ethiopia. Yeah. So so it it's a step in the right direction. But, you know, uh, I, I think we we need to wait and see how quickly. Look, let me conclude this, to your question by saying that my I've studied bond restructurings from back in the 1800s, you know, the first Latin countries that defaulted in, in the early 1820s, and the big stumbling block, whether they're public or official or private creditors, or whether they're bondholders or commercial lending, the big problem always is getting creditors to accept haircuts. You know, that, that, that's the big, big challenge. And, and, you know, getting to
0: convince the private creditors, especially, um, you know, uh, bondholders to take a haircut is a whole different uh, kind of discussion. How hopeful are you, Carmen, from what you've seen so far about bringing the private sector and the non-traditional bilaterals uh, on the table and to really, to to actively collaborate?
1: I I, I hope for the best, but I, I think, again, in the, you know, Albert, in the idea of being helpful on the policy front, you you hope for the best, but you prepare for the worst. That that you you know that uh, many things can complicate these negotiations, and I know that one of the items that you're is big on your list, the issue of transparency, is very important. Uh, but you know. Let's just say I am cautiously optimistic, but emphasis on the cautious. Okay.
0: Absolutely. And and and, and what you're saying is is fundamental for our listeners, uh, uh, Carmen. Uh, those of our listeners who are policymakers, uh, it's clear that the whole solution will not come from the common framework. Part of it, if not most of it, would have to come from African countries as well. And you mentioned earlier the issue of debt policy and debt management and, and issues of debt transparency. And you also mentioned how indigenous Africa is. So I like to think that the beauty of my job is, is, is because Africa is so diverse that, you know, for any question, I can always find a handful of countries that are doing very well and a handful of countries that are doing poorly. Do you see any good examples that you can actually uh, cite among the African countries that are doing it a little bit right?
1: Uh, well, and I think in this very difficult environment, uh, you know, let, let me flag a, a couple that I think are doing very well, both on the transparency front and also on the debt management side, and you know, Benin and Uganda. Uh, do come to mind, for instance, Um, you know, I I was actually at the website of the Bank of Uganda uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, You know, I always look at also the issues of exchange rates and what are foreign exchange bureaus charging versus, and and the data is all there, you know, the the issues. And and with regards to debt, uh, transparency is not just a buzzword, okay? I mean, how can you do Meaningful debt sustainability exercise. If you have hidden debts, right? Uh, and on, let me and let me broaden the issue of hidden debts. It's not just hidden. You know, for example, SOE borrowing that isn't taken into account. You know, the state-owned enterprises were big borrowers during the boom, during the last commodity boom uh, in many countries. Um, uh, borrowing some of the borrowing from China is not recorded uh, and importantly you know domestic debt uh, is is also and domestic arrears are issues where a lot of transparency is needed but you know in the case of Benin i was I had the pleasure of being with the minister um, uh, a, a few weeks back and it was really just so sensible to hear about lengthening maturities. Uh, avoiding some of the issues that I was highlighting earlier of you know going down the siren song of you know borrowing at very high interest rates. Uh, so the balance between uh, multilateral borrowing and private borrowing you know and private borrowing it it, it was very uh, it was really you know uh, very, uh, important to hear that in a, in a time of crisis, so much caution, because I think caution is the right, you know, so much caution on, on the debt management front uh, was uh, ha, ha, what was practiced. So so you always do. So I, I emphasize the issue of heterogeneity so much. That's right, and and you know that
0: point is 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 fundamental, Carmen. Transparency is not just a, a, a buzzword because um, there is actually a dimension, a, a, a um, you know there is there is um, a, a situation where countries can actually benefit from transparency. Uh, my colleague Kubota and I have this paper where we show that when countries are more transparent in their data and, and, and in in their debt management, uh, they lower uh, the uh, the interest rate on your on borrowing.
1: I am familiar with it. I'm a big fan of that. Yes, I've cited it a few times. So, so so yeah. you know,
0: there is a strong interest for countries to actually be transparent. It's not just uh, because someone is asking them to do the second thing I, you know, I'm taking out of you understood here, Carmen, is that uh, transparency is, is about a number of uh, areas. It's about data availability and accessibility. You have some, you have countries that do have the data, but the public at large cannot access them. The second is to also, uh, you know, have those uh, annual borrowing plans, for example that are shared by you know, the government and, and the public can actually question them or the parliament can question those annual borrowing plans. That's part of uh, you know, transparency, debt transparency. And, and it, it's also about you know, um, information about the recently contracted uh, loans. You know, um, it, it is important for the public and, and for the citizens to know at what rate the, the government is borrowing, because it's mortgaging their future. Indeed. so indeed, all those elements really are uh, critical, and uh, you know our, our governments need to uh, really f- focus uh, squarely on on improving those, because there is a payoff for uh, for our countries. And this brings me to another point you mentioned: uh, credit rating agencies have been uh, you know, one of the reasons why some African countries were reluctant to uh, participate in the DSSI. So um, what do you see as a way to engage uh, more productively with, with creating rating agencies?
1: Well, Albert, I, I do think you, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more on the, 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 the and, and I, I, I am familiar with your work. I think the issue, you know, your, your work on borrowing costs i mean that's direct if you look at credit ratings and spreads they're importantly uh, uh they importantly correlate i mean you might have short-run discrepancies but the, the two things definitely correlate so the the transparency does have payoffs for for credit ratings as well um now uh i i, I would, highlight that unfortunately like capital markets credit ratings are also pro-cyclical so you know in bad times the probability of downgrades right just it is high you know uh and and it's very interesting Albert because if you look back at the global financial crisis of 2008 2009 which is called global but it was really an advanced economy issue it was about a dozen advanced economies that had banking problems and and housing bubbles um, emerging market credit ratings and in, in Africa's credit ratings on the whole after that were you know on the rise uh, and and indeed you had more convergence because actually advanced economies were getting proportionally more downgrades. This has been reversed during COVID. And for some of the reasons that you also mentioned that, and, and also the ones I alluded to earlier, that you had a really bad shock coming already on what were more frail fundamentals. So I think uh, the 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 strategy you lay out about uh, transparency also in, in, in budgets and spending plans, much more, Beyond just the immediate debt, that is, it's not going to solve the credit rating problem. Okay, but it certainly moves in the, you know, in the right direction. Right, right.
0: So, coming um, the uh, the the issue uh, of of Africa's debt and African countries, uh, you know. Uh, uh, in, in, in high risk of debt distress, or already in debt distress, um, would certainly have to come from uh, the international community, as we said. Uh, but, but more important question is, uh, and this is a question that we generally don't like to to, 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 to to I mean, policymakers don't like to hear the question, but I think it, it deserves uh, some discussion what was the debt used for is a question how were public investment management processes uh, you know um, do you see uh, you know improving public investment management as as as, as one of the ways to uh, to exist in this situation and where are how, where are other uh, you know parts that you can point to
1: You know, Albert, this is a very deep question that you're asking, okay? It's a very deep question because it's the recurring eternal question through history that, you know, the seeds of debt problems are sown not during the bad times, but during the good times. You you know, this is when countries have access, when creditors are so willing to lend, when things are going good, and that is when countries, very often governments, get careless, in terms of extrapolating and thinking that if you think your commodity prices are going to remain high for forever, and 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 your income therefore is going to reflect that, uh, the tendency to overspend. And when I say overspend, I also mean you know in the end, uh, the issue you raise about uh, the, the 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 productivity of investment. You know, is this the kind of investment that leads to long, longer-term growth? Um, it's a very mixed bag. Okay, uh, you know, there are there are legacy ones that you know there are certain infrastructure projects that you say, okay, over the short run, it's not going to help you solve the debt problems, but there is a legacy that the infrastructure uh, was significantly improved. Uh, and that lasts, you know, that that outlasts even the debt crisis. Okay, uh, but but the problem is uh, there there also is a lot of investment, and I put it on quotes uh, that ends up being consumption because of a very unproductive uh, and expensive, uh, you know, nature. And so it's a very mixed bag. I, I can't say that. You know, um, I think in Africa you have, <laughs> as you as one did in 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 uh you know in the run up to the 1980s crisis, a, a mixed bag of both. One of the reasons why some of the Asian countries came out faster of the 1980s crisis than Africa or Latin America had to do actually with you know, some of the studies show that, that they, number one, uh, had, you know, less successes on, on unproductive investment. Not that there wasn't any, there was plenty of evidence of that as well. But And number two, that it's important to keep infrastructure maintenance, even in bad times. So that in one lesson you asked me earlier on lessons... Uh, and there's, you know, an interesting earlier paper from one of my co-authors, uh, uh, Rochelle Kaminsky, I basically argued that one of the reasons why Asia did better than the other regions was also when it came time to tightening the belt and and doing, you know, the, the kind of budget's uh, reshuffling that and and tightening uh budgets um investment wasn't the only thing that suffered you know that you know that the importance that the adjustment was more distributed uh and it wasn't investment wasn't just the adjustment factor that you cut entirely because that that has, really medium-term consequences for growth so it's important to to keep that in mind that that it's one of the things that you can cut quicker investment that's exactly right yeah the the temptation is great temptation is great but it's important to keep in mind that it's also uh counterproductive from a you know medium-term perspective
0: no that's absolutely right and and you know, even in the midst of the crisis, we need to make sure um, all the fiscal adjustment, it's not made on the back of investment alone. And, And we need to continue maintaining those infrastructures that would allow us to grow faster because there is no better solution to really addressing the debt crisis than growing faster. So, so this is going to be it's going to be uh, a big challenge as we, we we continue to struggle with with, with COVID um, and and with this recovery uh, years uh, coming. What is going to be really critical is to see how uh, we bring in uh, the civil society as well uh, to uh, to help uh, in, in in ensuring that transparency and accountability that are key to any. Good debt management policies, so, and and that's where I'm going to ask you maybe uh, you know uh, one last question, which is um, you know uh, why should this discussion matter to the average citizen in Africa?
1: Look, Albert, I, I tried to make the point very early on that this is not just about debt, right? That that debt servicing difficulties, debt problems become the problem for the average person because budgets are tightened, uh, spending becomes more skewed towards debt servicing. Uh, so what governments spend on education, on you know social safety nets, uh, on environmental and, and all the things that the average citizen, you know, um, is is affected, uh, are intimately connected with the fiscal strength or lack thereof uh, of their government. And then I would add another one, uh, Albert, that we haven't even touched. You know, debt problems don't travel alone. Usually, inflation goes hand in hand with uh debt problems because as external finance dries up, governments turn more inward and rely more on the inflation finance. Inflation is a very regressive tax. Uh, you know, you see it in food prices. Uh, you, the average person is is affected intimately. Uh, their purchasing power, their well-being is you know affected in so many ways. Uh, and so, you know, debt crises don't travel alone. You know, there, there are all other kinds of hosts of problems it brings on that have big social, big social consequences.
0: Absolutely right, Carmen. Um, you know, debt problems don't travel alone. I like that, that line. They don't travel alone. Uh, they affect household through uh, inflation. But they also affect, uh, you know, firms and, and private sector through the debt overhang and the uh, the risk of uh, higher taxation, which definitely affects the bottom line of, of uh, private investors that we desperately need to actually drive.
1: Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up, Albert, you know, because they also, you know, I, I, I've been looking, you know, at some of the... Uh, which is quite understandable, you know, the early numbers on the allocation of credit. And, you know, okay, so in many countries, okay, so in a number of countries, government is the only borrower from, you know, state-owned banks. But but in many others, uh, the credit channel, meaning, uh, you know, governments uh, start really, whether it's with or without financial repression, borrowing uh, from banks um, really dries up what little may be of finance, private finance for firms. Um, I'm not talking about the big firms uh, so much which have you know better connections, but alternative funding abilities, but but you know the this the smaller, uh, medium size also uh, suffer from, from that dimension. It's, there's a lot of heterogeneity, as I keep saying. Uh, but, you know, what we've seen on a preliminary preliminary basis is that, you know, I'm concerned that some countries may be also, in addition to all the other shocks, may be seeing, you know, really worsening credit conditions for, for, for firms and, and, and households.
0: Absolutely, and, and one, one uh, additional dimension as to why the uh, the citizens should worry about debt, this this at least, at least uh, poorly managed debt, is is the fact that you know there is a clear crowding out between interest payment and social services. If you take our largest economy in sub-Saharan South Africa, Nigeria, more than fifty-seven percent. Of of government revenues go to uh, interest payment. That's 2020 numbers. That's huge.
1: Yeah, no, that that uh, I I I have to say I was pretty shocked when I when I saw those numbers. Now, uh, one th- and we have so much to talk about, but one thing that I think lies ahead for many countries is also revenue mobilization, and starting with Nigeria, also domestic uh, revenue mobilization. Because you know, if you look at uh, revenue as a share of, of GDP it, in many countries has had declined again, uh, and so I think that I think that is I think that's part of the COVID aftermath.
0: On, on that note, we will end this conversation. But but uh, you know before I would like to highlight uh, Carmen that. You know, revenue mobilization is extremely important, especially in countries like Nigeria, where it's it's dramatically below the average of sub-Saharan African countries, which is already quite low, it's less than 40%. But in some other countries, you have that little trade-off between raising taxes and encouraging private investment during you know a time where you actually need it for recovery. So there is that little conundrum. Countries have to. Uh, uh, manage and and but the key here again to land on where you started is probably on on uh, you know transparency and accountability because uh, we can actually significantly increase uh, domestic revenue mobilization just by you know improving the way we manage the way we uh, we raise those those revenues. Any last word, uh, Catherine?
1: You know, I hate to sound like we're always in agreement. I'm sure we'll find other things to disagree on, but this is, I, I think, an area that you've highlighted the importance of that. One one word we haven't used, Albert, is confidence. I think transparency fosters confidence and suffering from lack of confidence, lack of confidence in the government, lack of confidence in the currency. We know the outcomes. The outcomes are capital flight, the tax avoidance and a great many other things that are counterproductive. So transparency, I, don't know, I would highlight also is a builder of confidence. Thank you so
0: much, Carmen, for sharing your insight with our listeners. A lot of work to do on all sides to manage that more effectively in the long run across African countries. A reminder to our listeners, You can find our podcast episode at worldbank.org slash afronomics. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufa to share your views, questions, and
1: ideas. Until next time, thank you for listening and stay well.